politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew as if this is 1776, but a hundred times worse requires a hundred times the dedication. Do we have it? I don't think so, but we must create it. Here at CR Podcast is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here today, Friday the 24th. And Fridays are always a double-edged sword. I, you know, look forward to time with family over the weekend. On the other hand, we have so much left on the table. We did have some good long-form interviews, so that's why we're a little bit behind. So I apologize if I'm talking too quickly, trying to get out too much. Um, I want to start with a random data point. Random data point that is seemingly divorced from the main topic today I want to discuss. The rise of black supremacism, the war on whites, an issue that for too long, conservatives have been too scared to broach, but it it, it must be broached, and and rather quickly. Um, but you'll see it will tie in in the end. And it's a random data point. So much going on, so much we could talk about. Um, of course, by the way, Donald Trump still has not been arrested, um, but we're not allowed to talk about anything else but that. But we'll we'll talk about it. Um, sixteen million, a record sixteen million people applied for the Obamacare exchanges. And, you know, they're bragging about it. They're celebrating. And a thought crossed my mind because we know that COVID fascism is the bastard child of Obamacare. And I was thinking to myself, how happy, how great is the share of the left and the Democrats? That is the triumph of survival. Wow. You know, I think back to where I really turbocharged my career was during the Tea Party 2009, 2010. And I think back, you know, that was the time we thought America was more radical than ever. You certainly had the fiscal dependency and the spending and everything. And Democrats went on to pass Obamacare and we're thinking like, whoa, are, are they on a suicide mission? And they lost, you know, 64 seats in the, in the 63 seats in the House. They... They lost a lot of Senate seats. They lost a lot of governorships. They they had record, record losses in the state legislatures. It's like, what was the point? I mean, you guys knew that was going to happen. And the answer is, yes, they did know it was going to happen. But they fight for long-lasting, enduring, enduring victories. Reagan always said we're one generation away from losing our freedom. And that is because freedom never perpetuates itself, whereas tyranny does. You could create dependency. You could destroy healthcare, the largest sector of our economy, the fulcrum, the palladium of our life and liberty, as we painfully learned the last few years. And it's extremely hard to fix. I mean, I, every day I try to think of innovative ideas. We know why healthcare is messed up. We know who did it. We know what it should, what it ought to look like. But how do we get there now? That's a very hard issue. Same thing with the culture. What do you do when you convince an entire generation that you're a bunch of androgynous crazies? What do you do when you just have an entire generation convinced that white people are inferior? That, that, that is something that is long-lasting. And you look back to all the Republican presidencies, Bush to Trump, what long-lasting legacy do we have of something that survived? Something good that survived that, that's a force multiplier in the culture or economy. What we're doing is not working. 
I know it's a depressing thought for the day, but that will set the tone because it is so true. Um, if you want to not be depressed and you want to actually meet sane people and yours truly out at Patriot Academy's new uh, campus in Fredericksburg, Texas for a five-day defensive handgun training course to learn how to draw from a holster, clear malfunctions, how to improve your marksmanship, situational awareness, trigger uh, control, sight alignment, all that stuff, and have such a good time together with other listeners to this show and the Patriots at Patriot Academy. Join me by going to patriotacademy.com slash Daniel. Um, slots are filling up. We have about a month left. Those of you who live in Texas, no excuse. You know, rather than taking a summer vacation, take a spring vacation. The weather is nicer. Uh, it the The inaugural course that I'll be at is on April 23rd, Sunday through Thursday. I'll be there through Wednesday. Um, I won't be able to stay for the test. The last day you have a, a, a test on all your skills. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Um, $500 for something that's worth about 2000 because it is subsidized. Um, you have to make your own arrangements. Uh, if you're flying in, you fly in either to Austin or San Antonio, and it's been an hour's drive, and that's, that's the trip I'm making. But a lot of you who live in the area, if you're retired, make a road trip out of it. Again, patriotacademy.com slash Daniel. Um, email one of Rick Green's sons at defense at patriotacademy.com if you have any questions about the arrangements. So, folks, you know, the, I was thinking the best we can do almost is just swat down bad things. But you never perpetuate yourself, right? Because they're constantly, they constantly have first and goal at our one-yard line, except there's more than four downs. They have an unlimited number of shots. So even when you play defense, and you swat it down, they could always come back. And once they come back, it's pretty hard to root it out. And we certainly saw that with Obamacare. And look, every day we bleed states. The few states that didn't want to expand Medicaid, North Carolina, overwhelmingly, the Republicans agreed, passed 43 to 2 out of the Senate, 92 to 22 out of the House last month, expanded Medicaid, the dependency, the horrible care. I mean, healthcare is a dumpster fire. I was at a chiropractor yesterday. It was the first time I've been at a, any doctor for a while. And these guys are really good. They think outside the box. And we we're just talking about this, how everything in the medical field is utterly retarded. It's just messed up. It's the biggest share of our economy, the biggest threat to our liberty, the biggest drain on our budget, the biggest market distorter, the biggest drain on, on personal income or you know, it comes out of your paycheck, $30,000 for employer plans. And they won. They won on that issue. It only gets worse. And, and the thing is, the more chaos you create, the more it purposely blows up the system, the more they have to create more programs. Tyranny perpet perpetuates itself. Freedom never does. But the best we can do is at least block bad stuff. And I, I must say, you know, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I'm trying to demonstrate a blueprint, a blueprint for what other people could be doing. Tucker, Hannity, Levin, all, all the way on down. Oklahoma, we talked about a bill to give illegal aliens driver's licenses. It looks like it's dead. The outrage worked. It looks like it's dead for the year. Um, the UCC bill that would exclude cryptocurrency from the definition of money, which will make it easier for a central digital currency, um, that looks to be dead as well. And around the country... With the exception of North North Dakota, with that animalistic governor, 
who signed the bill, most most states, people are waking up and they're heeding our call and, and they're voting down the bill. It's amazing when you stay focused what you can do. And look, I'm a, I'm a relatively small fish. Imagine if the bigger names would focus like a laser beam on outcomes, outcomes, outcomes. We talked about this yesterday with January 6th. Where are the outcomes? States need to start gumming up the works for the FBI defending with legal defense funds people that are you know, being persecuted. There's another thing I'm working on. Capitol Hill police are setting up regional centers around the country. Dinky Capitol Hill police. What right do they have to do that? That's something Kevin McCarthy could get on unilaterally, even without the president. They need to be subpoenaed. We need to know what sort of intel gathering operations are they engaging on as they look at 1,200 other Americans that literally did nothing wrong. Every day there are things we can do that's right. But we never fail to miss an opportunity. We never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. That's what it is. Whereas the left, they're always focused, focused like a laser beam. But that's why I need you guys to join one of our teams at conaction.network. Very, very important. Um, You can make a difference. It's amazing. One, two people flagging a provision in a bill that we might not have known about. You know, I'll give you an example. I have an article I'll take. It's not, it's not the biggest deal in the world. It's more for what it represents. And it's very good, really, in light of um, the discussion today. So, and, and thank you, Aaron, um, who is a listener of the show, uh, worked as a staffer in the house for a number of years. And I didn't realize this. It turns out, under the rules package that McCarthy negotiated and adopted they kept a new innovation of the Pelosi Congress. A couple years ago, Pelosi created this Office of Diversity and Inclusion. So all Republicans say they're against CRT, they're against DEI, that agenda. But then in the one area where they have influence, right, you know, the speaker controls the legislative branch, they could just terminate it and not continue it. They, they have it right there, continuing it. It's right near next to the Office of Inspector General, General Counsel, Chaplain, and boom, right there. And the director is this like lesbian, DEI, CRT champion. She talks about the need to elevate, elevate equity and diversity, elevate racial differences. And no, you need to de-emphasize them. And, you know, yeah, they'll say it wasn't worth the fight. We, we, we won't really have it do much. Monitor how much staffing and hiring of non-whites. Basically, like everything in society, you get more points the fewer whites you have and you know whatever sort of perverted pyramid they have. Everything but equality under the law, policy, meritocracy. They all say they're for it, but then even in their own sphere, they won't end it. And it might not be a big deal. It might not do much, and maybe they'll even neuter it. But what it demonstrates is that they're still too scared to pick the fight, to stand before the people and say, we believe in Martin Luther King, we believe in Declaration of Independence, and Abraham Lincoln, we're all created equal, 
No, nothing more, nothing less. What is so hard about it? We will extirpate any mention, indulgence, elevation of race and identity in law, in policy, in education, in hiring. It's all a meritocracy. What is so hard about that? But clearly, they cannot shed their cowardice on this issue. I agree with the left. We are a country of cowards on race but not in the way they think of it. But before I get too far, far asunder here, um, I want to get to our interview. Our interview today is sponsored by Jace Medical. Again, we've been warning you, there are supply chain shortages everywhere. It's getting, got a little better for a while. Now it's getting worse again. There are antibiotic shortages. There's all sorts of drug shortages. Um, now, they don't offer all drugs, but what they do offer is a Jace case of five life-saving antibiotics from uh, you know, doxycycline, azithromycin, amoxicillin, all things like that. As they shove dangerous mRNA on you and remdesivir, they're going to make sure you cannot get a hold of this. Paxlovid, everywhere. Government spends billions of dollars on that, a bioweapon, but nothing on this, um, even that you can get on your own nickel. So I want you to go right now to jacemedical.com. That's J-A-S-E medical.com. Put in promo code review at checkout for a discount. But you'll have to go through maybe a five to 10 minute survey just so they can give you a valid uh, prescription from a licensed doctor uh, preemptively. So you don't have to have a current you know, UTI or sinus infection or whatever, but it will be there for you right away in case you need it. Uh, we shouldn't have to do this, but we learned from COVID. We absolutely do. JaceMedical.com, promo code REVIEW. So we've been talking about the fact that tyrannical policies are long-lasting and enduring. They self-perpetuate. They're self-executing. Whereas freedom, right, a lack of tyranny, it doesn't perpetuate. There's no systemic program that creates dependency, a cascade of unnatural market distortions, social and societal transformation distortions no it's the absence of it so at any point you might not have it then but then at any point if you're not vigilant boom it could come and and zap you and one of the things that scares me to death when i look at this country and one of the reasons why i i badly want some form of national divorce why i think it's irremediably broken is because it's not just a matter of the law and the policies the, law, the laws and policies over the years have induced a culture, and it's so cynical and it's so disgusting, but you wonder what you do about it. And as I mentioned, one of those issues is the war on whites, the systemic racism that no one wanted to talk about. And, and really, it was true my entire life, or at least you know since I remember the 90s, the 2000s. But it has reached such a feverish pitch where it's somehow okay to openly discriminate. And even Republicans and conservatives, it's like you watch them, they speak, there's like a twinkle in their eye. Every time, oh, but this is a black this or a this that. Well, I mean, wait, whites are inferior? Aren't we all created equal in the image of God? And we all kind of say that, but then as a matter of fact, we don't act that way. But then there's a specific problem that I have been watching for years, and, and part of it has been because I've so closely covered the crime issue. There's this 
culture of violence that has been impelled among a lot of black youth, it's undeniable, and it's getting worse and worse. I think social media made it worse. And, you know, a lot of people have been passing around around the internet um, this week. It might have been a couple months old, but a clip of this couple on a subway and a black individual was just belligerently just going on a racist tirade and almost attacking them. And we see people being viciously beaten. And, and, and really, this has been going on for a while, but it's just, it's reached a feverish pitch. And, you know, you look at society and you think, well, maybe there's not such a public policy action item uh, agenda list here because, you know, it's society. Like, what are you going to do in statute and law? But it's really when you have every level lever of politics, policy, and law inducing what I call a blood libel, meaning it's not just that it's a lie that there's systemic white supremacism. It's that it's the opposite. To the extent that this is going on, there's systemic anti-white bias and even violence everywhere. There is a way too large contingent of black nationalism, black supremacism, but it's not organic. It is encouraged. It is codified by government and certainly was turbocharged with St. George Floyd and was basically like every white person is guilty and there's nothing you can do to atone. You have to pay reparations. You have to be on the short end of, of affirmative action. You have to be on the short end of everything, but even then it won't be enough. But, but disturbingly, this license to of violence, um, you know, I've said before, some of you might have heard this in my area. So, you know, there, there's always been a, a large contingent of crime, juvenile crime. It's, it's all black. And typically it was a crime of opportunity. So, I don't know, a high school kid wants to steal a bike. So they'll steal a bike. But we once had a situation not too far from me where, I mean, these were middle school age. I'm talking about 11, 12, and, and it's starting very young. They... They said to the kids, you better give us the bike, otherwise you're racist. And I was thinking, a generation ago, they were not saying that. They, w w what happens with a blood libel is, it's not just that you make up something about people, but it's the opposite. And then the more you make it up, the more you fan the flames of the violence against those people. And you almost legitimize it. Yeah, these, we got to root out this white supremacism. So it takes the existing... Black supremacism, black separatism, violence against whites, discrimination against whites, and it turbocharges it. This is a fact, and it's even worse than what I'm making it out to be. Now, obviously, I, was, I never shot away from this. But most of my life, I didn't want to accentuate it and draw attention to it because unlike the other side, I mean, we would rather not talk about it because it's not a matter of black people and white people. Everyone's a freaking individual, and there's no, like, you know, if, if someone commits a crime, uh, does something particularly horrible of any ilk, you don't say, well, oh, it's all those people are culpable that share the religion, skin, ethnicity, whatever. So we're not into that. But the problem is when you go and start creating these problems, at some point we need to not just call it out but identify it. It's like, you know, we had this with crime. Like, too many blacks are, are locked up. Well, I'd rather not talk about it, but if you're going to – talk about it and force policy changes based on that, we're going to have to say that, you know, well, you know, they commit a disproportionate amount of violent crime. And in fact, 
they're under-incarcerated relative to the crime level. But again, it's not they, because someone who is not committing crimes that happens to be black is not culpable for that. So this is the conundrum we're in. And it's, it's a very big problem, because even if you get rid of a lot of these programs, which, as we've noticed, Republicans don't want to do, um, we're certainly seeing in some states they're passing it in legislatures. In Florida, they're taking it to the next level, even higher education, not just K through 12, banning this. Um, you know, obviously African American Studies AP that was probably the most direct, boldest move we've seen with DeSantis in Florida. But what do you do when you have the residual effects of an entire generation? Maybe you could trace it back to like the rise of Obama, kind of that era, and certainly getting you know a hundred times worse after George Floyd where you have an entire generation of, let's say, well, white liberals pushing this, but then you have, let's say, blacks 10 to 30 years old that are just militarized, and some of them very violently. This is a very, very big problem. What do we do about it? Well, we got to first define it, talk about it, and cover the scope of it. Today we have a very special guest um, with us that I've been meaning to have on for a while, a friend of mine, Jeremy Carl. He is a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. Uh, he focuses on immigration, race, multiculti, these type of issues. Prior to joining Claremont, Jeremy worked for a decade as a research fellow at the Hoover Institution in Stanford University. He lived out there in, in California. He's now moved to Montana. Um, he's been a policy advisor. He served as deputy assistant secretary of the interior during the Trump administration and he's currently working on a book, I think will be published by Reagan Ree, the, uh, about the rise of anti-white racism in America. You could follow him at Jeremy Carl Fourth, the number four, on Twitter. You could see some of his articles at The American Mind, Claremont's publication. Jeremy, boy, is it an honor to have you here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. It's a, it's a great pleasure. So, Jeremy... You know, you and I are kind of similar where, you know, we started out a little bit in the think tank world and we just realized after time, like this, this movement just doesn't get it. They just don't get it. Um, they'll talk about marginal tax rates here and there. And the problems we're facing are so much more systemic. And um, look, you know, I, I had to fight, as you all know, for a decade, our own, every single right leaning think tank adopt adopted de-incarceration to pander, you know, to the gods of racism. Um, let me just start out with the scope of the problem. Um, you know, years ago, correctly, it's like 20 years ago, and I forget the author, there was a guy who wrote a book, what, White Girl Bleed. Um, mm, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. And, and he, he was yeah, radioactive. No one, right. no one in our industry wanted to touch that guy. But I mean, because this was going on for a while already, it was somehow someone like just beat a white girl. Yeah, and Colin Flattery wrote that book. Yeah, white girl fl Flattery. That that's what it was. Yeah, um, and um, they, uh, you know, and he was like white girl bleed and whatever that was. And and again, it wasn't an anomaly. It was very powerful because it's really systemic. It really, really is. And this was before Floyd. Could you try to give us a picture? Paint the picture of what we're up against, particularly on the physical violence, and where does it come from? Yeah, well, it's as you point out. I mean, it really is um, 
something that's kind of deeply ingrained and that and that makes it challenging and i think your opening comments were right on on the map in that we kind of don't want to talk about it and it's it's therefore very difficult for us it's it's just it's not the that type of communal thinking is not something that is comfortable for conservatives i mean I, i'm writing a book about it and i you know i a lot of times i'd like would rather not do it right because not just because of the blowback that you get but just because it's it's not how we'd prefer to deal with things but at a certain point structurally we've put ourselves in a situation where to not act is to act you know we're sort of in an unconditional surrender mode and you mentioned that video and i think it's interesting because this subway video I just was looking at least in the the few most popular copies of that that were uh, out on the the on Twitter have been viewed like 10 million times already. So there is this undercurrent. There are people who are seeing this violence who understand that it is a what we have going on is a blood libel against whites. That it is the the truth is the opposite of what we're being told. Um, but turning that into political action is really difficult because it involves having some hard and confrontational conversations. And it also involves, uh, you know, in some cases going up against a kind of woke civil rights law that's gone, you know, far, far beyond any sort of intent and even the letter of, of the law, quite frankly, when it was, was put in. And that's not the only time we've seen that obviously with the left. And so we, we have sort of psychological barriers. We have structural barriers I think the thing is people are, are seeing this. People experience this in their own lives, right? So um, pe- people see it, but they don't know how to turn this into a political program, and they don't have a systematic understanding about it. And my book is attempt- essentially an attempt to, in a variety of different areas, kind of take a look at this systematically. No, definitely systematically. And am I you know, imagining things that maybe it's just because the Internet – it does seem like it has gotten worse. And, and and my concern is, you know, let's say we do the best we can and we get rid of, we extirpate from every area of law. You know, I would love to have state legislatures. We had a bill in Arkansas. It wasn't just CRT. It's just every facet of government. It cannot recognize, distinguish a human being by race. There's no, no nothing more, nothing less based on that. Just done. I mean, is that is it that hard? Um, but that they created a situation with decades of this blood libel that I, I mean, again, I mean, this is, this is old news. When you take people from the time they're born, it almost reminds me of like jihad and, 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 you know, what they always yeah. talk about with like Hamas and Gaza, you know, from the time they're born, they're like, these people are out to get you and you have to kill them and whatever. I mean, it's almost kind of like that. Do, do we have this generation of younger, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing kids, young black kids, or, you know, are we starting to turn the corner on that? I think we're not yet starting to turn the corner on that. Or certainly, we, I, mean, I think things are getting worse from the perspective of kind of a, a black supremacy mindset on, uh, on that side of the table. And that's where you're seeing all of this absurd reparation stuff that I've, I've talked about and written about recently. Um, on the white end, or side of the table, and I'm not trying to just make this a black-white issue because, I mean, I think uh, some of the very incoherent stop Asian hate stuff is really all about black-on-Asian violence, uh, although there's some, you know, fantastic uh, kind of transference to blame Trump for it. But 
but just kind of treating this just briefly as, as the, you know, a black and white issue, even though it's a little more complicated than that. Um, I think there is a sort of undercurrent and awareness that <laughs> the current system we have is not sustainable, that we're not being told the truth. And I certainly see more people. I mean, I've been speaking out about this for, for quite, you know, for years now, just like you, but I certainly see a lot more people kind of joining me now in kind of saying, Hey, this doesn't make sense. But as you point out, uh, you know, we've had years where this has now been programmed into people. And I think a little bit of it, and, I, and I'm sad to say this on the, the side of, of whites, you have uh, Angus Deaton and Ann Case, who kind of have written about deaths of despair, uh, Angus Deaton, a Nobel Prize winning economist among white people, where you essentially have these drug uh, overdose increases and other things that you see that, that frankly kind of give a... Um, in appearance of particularly working class whites right now, it's almost like the new Native Americans. And I don't want to be that stark about it because I don't think that the um, the situation is that extreme yet, thankfully. But there is a sort of sense of psychological defeat that's going on. And that's what you really saw in that, that subway video. I mean, this guy is just being berated and abused and he doesn't say anything or doesn't do anything because he correctly understands that in New York City, if he confronts this guy, the, both the law and public opinion are very unlikely to side with him. Yes. And so, you know, I think we do have these things that uh, there's going to be a lot of damage that's going to have to be unwound. Yeah, I mean, it's been ingrained in almost everyone, the walking on eggshells, like, oh boy, he's, oh, okay, I, I didn't realize he's that. And it's like, any recognition of, of, of a difference is wrong, but... What what is in the psyche of what I'm trying to figure out is um and, and look we can bring up the South Africa paradigm yeah and if if I'm a you know a group of wealthy white liberals yeah what what is in the mindset of them wanting to foment and stoke a blood libel and and just needless hatred against whites. Do they think think like Louis the Fourteenth after me the deluge like I'll be gone by then? Yeah. You know it's it's fascinating to me. I think you've really hit on the grand mystery as I kind of begin to put this book together and look at other things. Zach Goldberg, who is at the Manhattan Institute and whose work you may be familiar with, has kind of looked and he re recently wrote a doctoral thesis basically on this, which is sort of the racial psychology of these liberal whites. And, and they have, it's really weird because if you look at every other group and he documents this really well in a, in a kind of non-ideological way at every other group, they kind of, you know, within a, within a range that, you know, you could maybe say some things are slightly different for some, some groups and some things slightly different for others, but it's African Americans, uh, Americans, Hispanic Americans or non-liberal whites, they all kind of have, what we would consider normal levels of, of in-group preference. In other words, it's a, it's a normal thing for people to have some level of preference for people who are like them, you know, who look like them, who you know, share a religious community, whatever it is. Um, now, obviously that can get to a point where it's so extreme that it becomes a problem. Um, but, but this is kind of a normal phenomenon. And what, what he shows in his research is this level is pretty similar for all groups. And the one group that it is not true for is, is liberal whites. And liberal whites have a dramatic 
outgroup preference, not even a small outgroup preference, but a dramatic outgroup preference. They, they hugely basically hate white people and they greatly prefer other races. And this is a very psychologically strange thing. And it's, it's not seen in um, liberal Asian Americans or liberal Hispanic yeah. Americans. So it kind of, it transcends ideology and it gets really deep into the psyche. And, and I would, I don't know. I mean, this is one of the things I'm going to talk with, with Zach a little bit more about his, his research, because I, I have a hard time. He points to media messages, but then that sort of becomes a little bit of a circular argument to me, because why does the media take that particular view? Yeah, because they're all white. I mean, to, the people doing that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard to make sense of. I mean, these guys, you can kind of make some arguments about, well, it's, it's um, you know, they're showing their status by kind of this noblesse oblige. And, you know, maybe that's some of it. But I think it's got to go a lot deeper than that because not all of these people with these views are high status people. So I think it's it's like really the great mystery in yes. this debate that I think we need to unravel. And it trickles down because the one area I would just expand upon what you said, it's not just white liberals. So even among white conservatives, and, and you and I have, have seen this for so many years, so they're not going to actively push like like unfair things and you know take it to an extreme, but there still is this guilt complex, I find. Like, I have no guilt. Like, I'm sorry. I don't give a freaking flip. It has been decades. I never lived through that. I wasn't a part of that. I didn't do anything wrong. Um, I don't ask for anything more, anything less. To me, it, it, it if, I, if I walk on eggshells, like let's say two people act like a jerk and one happens to be a black and one happens to be white and I would pull a punch because of his identity, that's actually diminishing him, right? So I, I, don't, sure. I, don't, I don't give a darn, but I could tell you, and you know this among conservatives. So I'll give you an example and this has really stymied me for, for many years. So we'd have primaries and Republican primaries and – you know, it's it's tough. As you well know, most Republicans are horrible, and then sometimes they'll have kind of new people that don't know what they're talking about, and they act like outsiders, but they're just too dumb to realize the issues. It's very hard to find someone that shares our values in a very specific way and is smart and savvy to um, achieve it and articulate it. Uh, it, it. It really doesn't – the stars don't align too often, but, but sometimes we'll have a good candidate. But then we'll have another candidate in the race who happens to be black. And the second that guy comes out, we don't have a chance. All these it, – it, it's, it's, and it's not just like the kind of conservative influencers, but really among the voters. Like, yes, a black conservative. And like, okay, well, I know he's black. I could see that. But I don't know yet that he's a good conservative. And sometimes they are. Often they're not. Like anything else, you got to whatever. And they basically essentially run affirmative action within – their own ranks. Isn't that a problem that we still have soft affirmative action even on the right? It, it is. And I think it's interesting. I, I didn't want to kind of get too deep in the weeds with uh, Zach Goldberg's research, but what you do, what he does find is across all ideological persuasions, even conservative whites have lower in-group preference. So that's, that's part of what you're seeing, but it's not anywhere near the sort of, you know, gigantic gradation in the opposite direction that, that liberal whites have. So, I mean, it's, it's not kind of pathological. It's more of a difference of degree. I think it's difficult and to be slightly fair to, you know, some of our friends on the right, I think there's a challenge in that when we have sacralized certain groups and attacked other groups and in politics, representation is going to matter. There is a natural temptation to kind yes. of say, Hey, 
you know, look, if this guy checks these identity boxes, whether he's African-American or Hispanic or gay or, you know, whatever group that we're being told we need to appeal to today, and he seems like he or she is good enough, <coughs> um, maybe I <laughs> go in that direction. Excuse me. But, uh, but I think there are some deeper psychological things at work that go beyond just that type of political self-interest calculation. Yes. No. I mean, there definitely is a survival instinct there that, you know, it's kind of like your panic button. No, 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 we have we have a guy that's one of the, you know, the the superior uh, entities and beings that 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 believe in what we're saying. No, 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 it can't be because this guy is black or this or that. Um, And and it really is disgusting. It's disgusting for all of us. And we need to rid ourselves of that. It, It just it's not good for us. It's not good for anyone. It's not good for those particular identities you know it's just it's just not and you know to me it's it's funny because um i always have this i have uh you know kids all all different ages two and eight and 11 and now turning 13 and you know you always talk about treatment and fairness and this and that and i'm like you know every time the two-year-old does something a new milestone you clap you know yay and whatever but if you did that to the 13 year old that would be insulting and it's like you know to me i find that insulting Oh, a black person did this. Like, like, wait, we're still doing that. Like, what? That, that's. I don't understand how that elevates. I, I think that's insulting. But nonetheless, there is. I do want to get to the. I mean, there's an element that I think is just insulting. But then there's an element that does really elevate and have real life consequences, and and that's the black privilege side of it. And we're just using that for shorthand. It's it's a broad. It's really more than black privilege. It's just anyone but whites and particularly white male uh, disprivilege. But you've done some analyses on the Biden administration's hiring um, just to demonstrate how obsessive, incessant and extreme it is and life altering just for, you know, know, what should be a meritocracy. Talk about your piece at American Mind on the judicial uh, selections. Yeah, well, I think this is it was just something that I did because I started and it was funny because the old people who put this together were a group that was kind of, uh, you know, being paid to say, hey, more of this is great. Uh, and that's the people I collected the data from. <laughs> but, um, you know, what I did is and I looked particularly at the judiciary because it just seemed really stark. And it's also, of course, as we know, I mean, it's been the only thing that Mitch McConnell has even gotten a little bit right probably over the years. Um, I mean, it's really important, right, because these guys have lifetime appointments. Yeah. So what I looked and I found <laughs> is that of the 97 uh, Biden judicial confirmations in the first two years, we had five white men and 22 African-American women. And then, you know, there's all these other um, demographics as well. And what I kind of show is no matter how you break that down, you know, whether you say, well, fine, you know, their coalition is a little more African-American or it's less white men. I mean, they're just dramatically, dramatically underrepresenting white men in their their coalition here. And then, you know, kind of redoubling upon that is, of course, that these groups are more likely to be uh, talented private sector lawyers. They're more likely to have scored high on the LSAT, you know, all the sort of objective measures that we would use you would tend to see uh, white men be much more overrepresented uh, than some of these other groups. But in fact, what you see is underrepresentation. And it's actually, I do think there's an opportunity here, and it's just going to take some time to play out in that, 
what the, the discrimination has gotten so extreme. If I'm a talented young white guy who wants to be an attorney, why am I going to sign up for the, <laughs> the Democratic Party right now? Seeing that, and again, we're just sort of seeing this level of discrimination in the last few years. And so I think it's going to take time to percolate through the system, but they're going to say, hey, you know what? My game, my opportunity is really to ally with the other side where I still will face um, some institutional discrimination, but I will at least have an opportunity. And so I think over time, and, and again, I'm just using the judiciary as one element, but you could see this throughout the government. I've also documented that there's not a single out of the 25 cabinet level people that Biden has, there's not a single um, white male of Protestant origin or white person of Protestant origin, um, you know, which was basically Amer- America. A hundred and wait, 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 wait. Years out of 27 ago. cabinet level officials, there are no whites of Protestant origin. So you're saying there could be a white Catholic or Jewish, a few of them. There, there, there's, then... there's several white. There's several uh, Jewish whites. There's a number of Catholic whites. There are no Got white it. Protestants, and nobody even talks about this. The, the only one, and I have to say Protestant origin is a little bit uh, clunky. So Pete Buttigieg um, grew up Catholic, uh, but converted to like Episcopalianism, I think, because he's gay and the Catholic Church doesn't like gays. So that's like their asterisk. Yeah. But the, the, the remainder is, I mean, this is a huge demographic still in the U.S., and it was essentially the entire U.S. government until a century ago, and certainly even 50 years ago, would have been overwhelmingly predominant. And now it has totally disappeared, and nobody even says anything. I mean, I've written about this a little bit. You know, maybe one or two other people might yeah. have observed it. It's, it's like it doesn't exist. And your point and, is it and, doesn't and, like, happen by accident. Out, you know, it's not a natural the level of course. Outrage is, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. So, so let me end with this, I just think then. it's so bad that there are, <laughs> there are some opportunities there for us. So, so, and no, and, and there are, and, and there definitely has been a reawakening. And I think there are opportunities. Again, the Republicans are slow always to respond. But I want to get your take on kind of the final frontiers, how to steer this ship properly, because I, I raise this concern forever. And you know exactly yeah. where I'm headed. You find this in Europe, um, where basically it's like it's all communist, but then you'll have a right wing which is just kind of right. like this Christian identity nationalism that you know is really big government and and on everything. Maybe they'll agree with us on a few things, um, but then they'll just take it the other way. And 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 basically, you know, our dream is just race just doesn't matter. It just it's a meritocracy. Right. There's no recognition. There's no pluses. There's no minuses in law. It's just not recognized. And and let the natural order of things flow out and natural law play out. Um, But my concern is, it's very natural. If you tell people for years, you suck, you're horrible, you're, you're, you're you're, really dehumanization. It's, it's taken on a whole new, because when I was like in the nineties, the Bill Clinton era is like, oh, you know, they need a leg up. We need like, you know, special programs. But now it's actively like you're a lesser being for being white so you'll have two groups that's naturally going to create people. You're, you're telling them that race is all that matters. So unfortunately, most young people, um, young whites are kind of growing up as like, you know, Stockholm syndrome. Like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I deserve a beating. Yes, I deserve a beating. But right. then those that don't want to subscribe to that, then there will be a very tantalizing 
allurement to say, yeah, well, you know, they're prideful about their thing. Yeah, I'll start a race for them. I want my white stuff. And then you get just kind of a race war where you get the, you know, kind of a form of chemotherapy if we don't do what's right. Are you concerned about that eventually predominating on the right because the good people fail to act in the proper way? I am. And I mean, (laughs) you definitely see this among younger conservatives, um, you know, younger folks I know who I would consider on the genuine right, um, if they've kind of run the gauntlet where they've immunized themselves from this, I think they're much more willing to push back on this, you know, kind of racial hierarchy. But then the problem is that some of them then take that way too far and you get into some of these um, you know, kind of strict ethno-nationalism that, that leads to a race war, ultimately, because we were scared to kind of confront this and demand equal treatment up front. And so I, I do think that that's a risk. On the other hand, I think there's really no way of avoiding. I, mean, I think at this point, what victory has to look like is a sort of mutually assured destruction, if you're familiar with that concept from yeah. the Cold War. I think we basically need to show that this type of kind of racial gerrymandering, bean counting, whatever you want to call it, is going to be met with a very serious backlash that is going to cost them electorally, that is (laughs) going to cost them uh, financially in all sorts of other ways, that we are perfectly willing to shoot the hostage, metaphorically speaking, of course. Um, And by doing that, which is, I mean, I just, I don't think, unfortunately, we can get around this type of brinksmanship. It would never have been my choice of, of you yeah. know, where to start. I just think that that's where we are in 2023. That is our, um, you know, um, possibility that we can then come to folks and say, hey, look, we don't really want to be doing this, right? And, and, and moderates on the other side will say, hey, you know, this probably isn't a good thing for us either. Let's talk about how we can reduce the temperature, get rid of these sorts of preferences and discrimination and kind of move forward as a country. Uh, so I think but but there's no way of doing that by surrendering or even quasi surrendering. You de-emphasize race. But but exactly. I mean, I think we have to get to the point that when they when they when the dog barks, you know, so typically conservatives ran like they ran from the barking. Oh, no, 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 no race, race. No, screw it. That that's not working. We're not backing down. This is the right thing. I don't care. Call me any name you want. Um, yeah. But again, I'm just concerned. There are people that'll be take the opposite approach. That well, you're elevating race to, you know, the most prominent level. So well, I'm not black. I'm white. So, you know, this is where it's at. So the same way you guys are militantly. Uh, obsessed about your race and supremacist about being black. Well, I'll be supremacist about being white. And there's no, I agree with you. There's no good outcome. It's like I talked about before this uh, director of the house diversity and inclusion office, which speaker McCarthy bizarrely kept in the rules package. She didn't have to do yeah. that. Um, divert. She, she said the Sesha joy moon. She has her pronouns in the, I mean, this is under the GOP majority, um, and then she talks about all the crazy stuff. Diversity is delegating differences, and inclusivity is celebrating differences, but equity is elevating differences. I never saw that language. Equity is elevating differences. Wow. 
does not sound like a winning formula for the GOP. But again, you know, our, our, our political leadership is behind our base here and particularly the young people in our base. I mean, I think again, the, the, the encouraging news and I'm a, I'm a core Gen X guy and you're, you're maybe not quite as old as I am, but you're, Borderline. you're not a, <laughs> as, 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 as a younger guy either. But I mean, I, I talk to a lot of our younger activists and I think they get it. And I think they're pushing people uh, politically who get it. But the problem is how do we kind of put a stop to this without these identity issues spiraling out of control. And unfortunately, I think it's going to be it's going to be a bumpy landing at best. That's what victory looks like. Victory looks like a very blunt confrontation, a bumpy landing in which some unhappy things are going to happen for all of us. But then everybody says, oh, you know, time out. Let's let's kind of come together as one country and move forward on this. That That's what victory looks like at this point. Just and, I'd be remiss to not add to your point just on a little positive note. The good news is, as much as they are racially obsessed, it's not an endgame. It's one of their many tools. So part of it is they want complete tyranny, biomedical tyranny. They want to control your life, body, and everything. So increasingly, see, on the one end, they're more racial than they've ever been. But on the other hand, they're a little bit less racial than they were in the 90s. Because now they're so such radicals. A lot of what they're doing is ticking off all sorts of – it's more almost like working class versus the elites. So that cuts across – that's a class divide that cuts across racial lines. So that almost is working against it, and that I think is in some ways is a positive development from the elite control. It's dangerous, and we have to confront it, but it, it has created more opportunity for unity because if you're not part of the spirit of the age – that is the other thing. If you happen to be black or West or that, I mean, any one of their, you know, supposedly chosen identities, but you don't buy into one of their spirit of the age items, like you know, wh- whether it's um, you know, a specific policy, it's the vaccines, you know, and and we, I think everyone saw that with the Fauci video, and I'm sure you saw that in walking around with the mayor in DC. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, and and they ran into a couple, and they knocked on their door as a black couple, and they just laced into them over the genocide of these stupid vaccines. And so I think there are a lot more opportunities to create unity through just a common cause of the working man versus the elites. Um, final you know, final word, yeah. and let's sew up. Yeah, no, I think that, that there's that's definitely true, and I think you're seeing this. I mean, you saw this down in South Texas with some of the votes. You saw this with movement of Asian American voters who are looking at kind of blatant discrimination that we're now seeing, you know, uh, adjudicated at the Supreme court. So there's a lot of people who are, uh, you know, I I say this tongue firmly firmly in cheek, but they're getting off the liberal plantation. Uh, You know, I I do think that they're realizing that in fact uh, the democratic party has currently constructed doesn't really serve their interests or really anybody's interests uh, over the long term. Um, the one note of caution I would have is I'm enough of, and I, I don't say this because this is my ethical view, but just my practical view of politics, is that ultimately elites, whether we like them or not, matter. And a purely, quote-unquote, proletarian uh, party that doesn't have buy-in from at least a segment of the elite or elite institutions has a really, really hard time of succeeding. And I certainly saw that in my own experience at the in the Trump administration, I mean, when you when you really lose all of those guys, it's very difficult um, 
to govern because they have all sorts of ways of gumming up the works. Um, and so I don't think that's an unsolvable problem, but it's just um, something that we need to deal with. I think elites are ultimately always going to be yeah. part of politics. And, and you're using the another. term elite in the way of our founding fathers were con- Madison was considered an elite in that sure. sense. And that, that is our struggle. And I, and I agree with you and boy, we could delve off into this because I've been dealing with this this week that there are certain segments that just, they conflate, you know, fairness and looking out for the, you know, America first to just being dumb as mud and just yelling and no policy direction and no right. desire to do outcomes. I just want to drink the liberal tears, like all this nonsense. Right. And we do need, and I, I know that's what you and some of your guys at Claremont are trying to build a parallel so-called elite, meaning just people that are educated, not in the sense of the stupid education nowadays, but in the way our founders viewed education, being smart, prudent, understanding law, understanding policy, understanding what's right, understanding human rights, understanding constitutional freedoms, and how to best strategize to get the outcomes that we want um, but, you know, I've been called, you know, names for kind of being like that. It's just good to just be dumb uh, on policy and just yell on social media and get nothing done. Um, and I think you're going to see that play out a little bit in the presidential election there. Where could people find your work? Well, you touched on my my Twitter account I, is where I post uh, and most stuff I do, which is Jeremy Carl, number four, J-E-R-E-M-Y-C-A-R-L. Um, my website, jeremycarl.com, I don't really update that a lot, but I do have uh, links to most of the stuff I do uh, there. I write for American Mind, American Greatness, Newsweek, um, uh, you know, several different outlets out there, American Conservative. Um, so you'll you'll see my stuff. And then, uh, as you touched on, uh, hopefully out next year should be my book uh, from Regnery, where I explore a lot of these issues and uh greater detail and maybe we can uh we can revisit this uh, subject when that's all ready definitely will uh hats off to you for uh realizing like me that what we were doing in conservative inc just wasn't working we need to take it to the next level and i'm glad you're broaching this issue take care yeah thanks so much daniel pleasure to be on look folks i mean this is the discussion that um you know, no one wants to have and no one wants to broach. What do you do when you have a fake GOP for years that was fostering this and now you have these problems and it's very serious. I mean, it's it, it, it's ruining lives. It's not funny anymore. Um, and, and we could do a similar parallel thing. You know, we're talking about, you know, what they're doing with the black supremacism and blood libel. Similar thing with gender. You know, just the beatdown of the male. Everything is female to the point where you know, where are the men? I mean, you're just beating down a generation unnaturally, and, and it's good for nobody. But uh, we still have the pandering. And, and and again, I'd be remiss to say, I'm just telling you, um, it's funny. From some of the same people attacking me on Twitter with real legitimate prejudice. Oh, you Jew globalist, this and that, because I dare say something against their dear leader. But then these same people are attacking DeSantis for not pandering to blacks, and they say he won't do as well as Trump did. They're actually taking that line of attack. I mean, I will tell you directly, no one could dispute this. The reason Trump stood down even more than a Democrat president would have um, with the rioting is because he pandered. It was all about racial politics. The reason he embraced the incarceration and jailbreak is because he embraced it. And that's what's weird. I mean, he'll say one thing and the next day, literally do the opposite. And this is why he's able to attack DeSantis on 
being too weak on COVID and too strong and killed too many people at the same time. He just had a, you know, incoherent rambling, um, you know, oh, you shut down, but then we have a whole paper trail of three months worth of him attacking him for not um, at the time. But then later on, he said he was right. But then, I mean, there's no accountability. It's just been stupid. And it's interesting. Jeremy did bring up an interesting thing. Um, it was a little bit off topic, but it kind of is. It you know Because I changed the subject, say, hey, you know, maybe we just, uh, when you cut out the elites that are fanning all this stuff, maybe we could unite. And, and it, you know, it doesn't negate my point, but his point was that kind of what I've been saying, populism is a strategy. It's not an ideology as an end to itself. If you're just like, yeah, down with everything and whatever, you know, you're left with nothing. Um, you do have to have a vision. And there's this narrative growing among some of the Trump crowd that DeSantis is too establishment because he's too into governing properly, like actually being smart. It's almost like you have to sound like a rambling fool like Trump's posts and sound like an illiterate idiot that doesn't know anything and sound, honestly sounds like a libtard and comes full circle. Um, no, I mean, stupidity doesn't get you outcomes, and that's what we saw. I'm sorry. If I if it's too painful to hear, then then I don't care. But we need parallel institutions that are willing to articulate what's right, do it in a smart way, be dedicated to it, see it through, not get scared away with, oh, you know, the epithet that you're a racist. I don't care. I just don't care. And the only way to avoid this is as soon as we can. And it's shocking how we went through a whole legislative session and we're really not going to do this in most places. Every recognition of race in government should be completely out. Really everything. Now, you want to keep Black History Month, a couple of these like commemorations. Okay, I'm not it's not worth fighting over that, but at a minute but but what we're talking about is just any elevation of, oh, you're a black-owned business. Well, wh wh what does that mean? What is a black-owned small business as opposed to a, a white-owned small business? Why should you get more adoration, more certainly you know government funding and loan capacity from the government than someone who's white? It, it's unfair. It's bad for everyone. It's insulting to everyone on all sides. It's so simple. What we've been talking about today is so bedrock. It's like, on the face of it, this is a very controversial show, but it's really like less controversial than anything I say. And again, I would warn, if you don't do this soon, you will get the chemotherapy. It's only natural. If you tell people we need to elevate racial differences, well, you know, A, you're going to have this black supremacism, and then it's going to... Eventually, you're going to create it. I said this for years. My, my father ingrained this in me that he didn't like overemphasizing. You know, you teach about the Holocaust, that's fine. But in Europe, just shoving it down the throats of younger generations that had nothing to do with it. You want to know about it, know what happened, teach about it. But there's a balance. You shove it down people's throats, you'll create anti-Semitism. Okay, it, 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 it's a, it's a double-edged sword. And at some point, you can't make a new generation feel guilty when they had nothing to do with it. You know, and heck, we've had so much immigration in this country for so many years. There aren't even that many people 
left that even were descendants of people who owned slaves. So, so knock it off. Let's get off of this already. Let's move forward. Why can't we have people running on that message? I, I just don't understand it, but uh, maybe we'll be able to pressure uh, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy to get rid of that diversity office. Let me know your comments, questions, concerns. As always, Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com. At rmconservative is the Twitter. Conaction.network is the website to sign up for one of our legislative action strike force teams. As we move move away from the legislative sessions, we're going to think of new ways to to again, this this is something you could do locally at a county level. I guarantee you, your Trump plus 30 point red county has some sort of recognition of race that shouldn't be there. Extirpate the evil from your midst. Elevation and recognition of race one over another is evil in any direction. That is the truth, and that's what we will speak. Till next time, God bless y'all. Have a terrific weekend, and thank you for listening.